Last Sunday, our preacher, the Reverend Sunday, uh, took us through 1 Samuel chapter 1, and uh, we had a look at the gift of pain from the story of Hannah. Uh, For those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we learned that the story of Hannah takes place during that dark time of the Judges, which is recorded for us in the book of Judges. Uh, During that time, we read that Israel had no king, and everybody did that which was right in their own eyes, uh, which wasn't particularly right at all. Uh, In fact, the book of Judges ends with two horrific stories that you'll never have heard in Sunday school that demonstrate how low God's people had sunk during those years. But towards the end of the period of the Judges, we read about two very ordinary but very godly women who hold fast to God. The first is a foreigner, a Moabites called Ruth, whose story you can read in the book of Ruth. And the second is this lady called Hannah, whose story we read last week. Just a simple, godly woman, unable to have children, who calls out to God for deliverance, and God answers her prayer and gives her baby Samuel, who she promises to dedicate to the Lord for his entire life. It's interesting to see how Hannah's personal need mirrors the need of the entire nation, because Hannah is poor and needy, and the nation of Israel is poor and needy. At this point, they still have no king, They are like sheep without a shepherd. And yet God is able to do, or God is about to do rather, for Israel what they cannot do for themselves. He's about to bring them a godly king who will shepherd his people with justice and righteousness. It's fascinating and encouraging to see that God's plan to save his people begins not with the anointing of a king, but with the desperate prayer of a barren woman for a child. As one writer puts it then, this passage reminds us that the small stories of faithful families are themselves woven into the greater purposes of God for his people. This morning I thought it would be good for us maybe to move on to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and have a look at the prayer that Hannah prays after she has given birth to Samuel and after she has taken him to the temple to dedicate him to God. So if you have a Bible with you, won't you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and we're going to read the first 10 verses of that passage. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death 
and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is God's word. There seems to be something in most of us that likes to support the underdog. We cheer when the unknown contestant beats the champion or when the weakest team finally wins a game. And a lot of Hollywood movies deal with this theme of the great reversal. I'm sure some of you may remember the Walt Disney film Cool Runnings that portrayed the story of the Jamaican bobsled team. And even though they didn't win, uh, the entire competition was rooting for them in the end. Or think of films like The Karate Kid or Rocky, one, two, three, four, five, or six. Or A Knight's Tale, uh, Rudy, Kung Fu Panda, Forrest Gump. Uh, we, we always cheer for the little person who beats the odds, beats the stronger competition, wins the game, and usually gets the girl in the end as well. Whether it's the Lion King, uh, the little red engine that could, or the tortoise and the hare, there's a part of us that backs the little person. Well, in the prayer that we've just read, we see that God is someone who backs the little person as well. The people who God chooses for his team are not the powerful and the professional and the proud, but rather the poor and the needy. I remember hearing one pastor saying that God is not only interested in the tall, dark, and handsome, but also the short, the shot, and the shapeless, which I think is good news for all of us, because there are none of us who have our lives in perfect order, and yet we see that God is prepared to work in us and through us anyway. So Hannah's prayer is a, is a deeply personal one. She's asked something of God, she's asked for a child, and God has answered that very prayer. Verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Uh, the updated New International Version has a helpful footnote here to explain to us that the word horn here means strength. Hannah has regained her strength and her sense of worth because of the fact that God has answered her prayer. So far, so good. But as we read on this, in this prayer, it, it seems a little bit strange. It seems an unusual prayer to pray after one has received a child. Certainly not the kind of prayer that we use in our, our children's dedication services, for instance. It seems more likely to be something that was sung after a battle. All this talk about enemies and bows and warriors and princes. 
And in fact, it is actually quite possible that Hannah is not using a prayer that she's made up herself, but is going back to Israel's ancient hymn book and using an old hymn to uh, express herself in the situation in which she finds herself. This may very well be a hymn that Hannah had learned during her regular worship of God. And I think there's something important for us here. The songs and the hymns and the Christian music that we listen to, that we listen to in our car or that we sing together as a congregation, are so important. As one writer puts it, our hymns and songs of worship are second only to the reading and exposition of the Bible. Whether it's the scripture choruses many of us use in our modern churches or the great classic hymns of the Christian faith, such singing of theology helps shape our thinking and prepares us for the day when we just cannot help ourselves and we too have to sing. So I'd encourage you to listen to good Christian music with great tunes and biblically sound lyrics, songs that celebrate God and focus on him because those words go deep into our souls and become part of our own language of praise. Well, no matter the author of this song, whether this is a prayer that Hannah composes herself or whether this is someone else's prayer that she uses, the prayer still has some important things to say to us. And firstly, the prayer has some very important things to tell us about God. Did you notice something that was conspicuously absent from this prayer? What's missing from this prayer? Okay, there's no reference to a baby, and Samuel isn't mentioned at all. If this is a prayer of thanksgiving for a baby, then it's very strange that the baby himself is not even mentioned. But you see, instead of focusing on the gift, Hannah is focused on the giver. Instead of her prayer being focused on the gift of a child, Hannah's prayer is focused on God. And Hannah has some very important things to tell us about God. A.W. Tozer was a Christian pastor and author who died back in 1963. But he wrote these words in a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to what he said about having a right picture of God. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech." Vitally important that we have the correct picture of God. And in this prayer, Hannah looks at some of the great attributes of God. We don't have time to unpack them all in detail, but let's spend just a few moments listening and reflecting on some of the characteristics of the God whom we serve and worship. Firstly, notice the incomparability of God. God is incomparable, or incomparable, if you like. 
Notice the thrice-repeated phrase, no one, in verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. No one can compare to God in his holiness and in his ability to save. Hannah's prayer also celebrates God as creator. And verse 8 is interesting. It reflects something of the cosmology of the ancient Israelites, how they saw the created order. Hannah says, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. We might see the created order in a slightly different way, but the point is still the same, that God is the creator of everything. He is the one who has created the billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy, one of billions of other galaxies in the universe, which in turn contain billions of stars. It's estimated that for every grain of sand on the world's beaches, there is a star. He is the one who has fashioned every leaf on every tree, every feather on every bird, every freckle on your face. He is the creator of everything, my creator and your creator. And it's precisely because of the fact that he is the creator, that he is able to act on behalf of the poor and needy. That's the point that is made in this prayer. And it also reflects Deuteronomy chapter 10, where we read, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. And thirdly, Hannah's prayer also reminds us of the sovereignty of God, that God reigns over all and is in control of everything. Verses 6 to 8. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. In Hannah's world, everything comes from the hand of God. As one writer puts it, in Hannah's view, there are no secondary causes, no extenuating circumstances. There is only Yahweh. This isn't blind fatalism, even though Hannah acknowledges that everything ultimately comes from God, it doesn't mean that things can't change. Remember last week, Sunday pointed out that twice in chapter 1, we're specifically told that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, and yet prayer changes things. As Walter Brueggemann puts it in his commentary on this passage, all it takes for a new possibility is one act of Yahweh, besides whom there is no other. And that, in fact, is Hannah's testimony in this prayer. 
So Hannah has a correct picture of God. She knows that there is no one like God and that he alone is to be trusted. She knows that in a world of chaos, in a world that is unstable, the only rock is God. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who reigns over all things. And so our trust and our hope lie in him. The second major theme in this prayer is what I'm going to call the great reversal. In this prayer, we see, to use words from 1 Peter 5, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's look at those two, one at at a time. Firstly, God opposes the proud. We see that a couple of times in these verses. Have a look at verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This prayer is a a real warning against pride. And it's significant that this prayer is located right at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Because you see, in later years, the nation of Israel would be tempted to rely on themselves. In the time of David and Solomon, Israel became the superpower of the ancient Near East. They were the most powerful nation of the time. They'd gone from being the weakest to being the strongest. And the temptation would be there for them to say, look at what we've done. Look at how great we are. Look at the strength of our arm. Look at the strength of our military forces. Who is as strong as us? And so this prayer, situated right at the very beginning of the book of First and Second Samuel, is a reminder to the nation of Israel not to be proud, but to remember that it is God who has acted on their behalf. In our own lives, it's so easy to become proud and entitled and self-satisfied. But we need to develop what one writer has called appropriate smallness. (laughs) To go out on an evening and to look up into the sky and to realize how big everything is and how small we are. We need to develop the humility to remember that everything we have and all that we are comes from God. And so we have nothing to be proud about. The house that I call my house was someone else's house several years ago, and in the future it'll probably be someone else's house. Actually, it's probably the bank's house. (laughs) The car that I call my car, uh, the clothes that I call my clothes, That breath that you just took, it comes from God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And secondly, in terms of the great reversal, not only does God oppose the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, the proudly self-sufficient have no need for God, or they think they have no need for God, and so they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Rather, it's the poor and needy 
and bankrupt who fling themselves on God because they have nowhere else to go. And actually, if we're honest, that's all of us. That's why Jesus begins his sermon on the kingdom of God by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this great reversal, that God humbles the proud and lifts up the humble, this reversal that we see in this prayer begins a theme that starts in Hannah's home and spreads outwards in ever-increasing circles. Let me explain what I mean. Firstly, the great reversal takes place in Hannah's own home and life. As we saw last week, Elkanah's second wife, Penina, who has several children, used to taunt Hannah about the fact that she had no children. But as Hannah says here, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Panina's taunts ultimately came to nothing. It was not through Panina's many children that blessing came to the nation of Israel, but through Hannah's one son, Samuel, that God's blessing came. But as I say, this great reversal continues through the rest of the book, the books of First and Second Samuel. As one writer says, this song provides an interpretive key for the books of Samuel. That is the power and the willingness of Yahweh to intrude, intervene, and invert. It's the main theme of this narrative. We watch while the despised ones, Israel, David, become the great ones. And the great ones, the Philistines, the giants, become the little ones. So, so we read about the haughtiness of Penina, uh, who seems so privileged. That is overturned. Later, we'll read about the arrogance of the Philistines, who seems so secure. That, too, is overturned. Later still, we read about the tallest and most handsome Israelite, Saul, who eventually ceases to be king. And we read about David, the least son, the rejected son, out in the fields, who is crowned as Israel's greatest king. And so we see that the theme of reversal continues even further. Hannah ends her prayer in verse 10 by saying, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. At this point, Israel had no king. Hannah, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly, is looking forward in faith to the time when God will bring a king. And little does she know, but the answer to her prayer for a child this baby Samuel is going to be the king-maker and the king-breaker in Israel. It's Samuel who's going to anoint Israel's first king. Later, it's through Samuel that that king will be rejected. It's through Samuel that the great king, Israel's great king, King David, will come to the nation of Israel. But Hannah's theme, this great reversal, goes further still. The story doesn't end with David, because although David indeed would be the best king that Israel ever had, there was still another king to come, one who would be called the son of David, 
our Lord Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you've looked at Hannah's song, but it might be sounding a little bit familiar to you. It sort of echoes something that we've read before. And if that's how you're feeling, you're exactly right, because we read a very similar prayer to this every Christmas. Hannah's song is the basis for another great biblical song from another unusual mother. In Luke chapter 1, we read a prayer that Mary prays, very similar to Hannah's prayer. In fact, it looks as if Mary has based her prayer on Hannah's prayer. It's known as the Magnificat, and Mary prays it after uh, she conceives the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. You see the similarities? Mary also speaks about a God who raises up little people and brings down the proud. In the middle of the power and the might and the pomp and the splendor of the Roman Empire, who would have thought that the Savior of the world would be born on the floor of a stable through the womb of a peasant teenager? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the pattern of power in seeming weakness continues through the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was indeed the king. But remember that Jesus reigns from the cross and his moment of greatest power was seemingly his moment of greatest weakness, stripped naked, whipped and beaten and nailed to a Roman cross. The story of Jesus is the story of the great reversal, the king who comes not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What, what does all of this mean practically for us today? Well, firstly, I think it's got an application for our feelings, our identity. You feel small and powerless and weak and insignificant. Maybe you feel that way because of what others have done or said to you, or perhaps it's because of something that you've done yourself. You feel disqualified, unable to be used by God. If so, it's important to remind ourselves of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you're feeling disqualified this morning, you're probably the person that God can best use. Paul wrote the books of First and Second Corinthians in the context of a group of Christians who were declaring themselves to be super apostles. Uh, theirs was a religion of power and wealth and honor. Paul says in Second Corinthians that in contrast to these super apostles, he feels like a prisoner at the end of Caesar's triumphal procession. He feels that he's the scum of the earth. But again, the great reversal plays out. Paul says to his readers that far from his weaknesses disqualifying him from God's service, his weaknesses are an opportunity to lean on and experience God's power. Remember that Paul says that God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul can go on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As one Bible commentator puts it, Paul knows that strength comes only in weakness and that only those who do not seek power can be exalted by God. And then are you poor today? We don't have time to look at this in detail. Um, it's a big subject. But the Apostle James reminds us in James chapter 1 that the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. If you're poor this morning, you're blessed. You may very well wish that God would bless someone else. But as we've seen this morning, the rich are most in danger of self-sufficiency and of turning away from God. If we're rich, we need to look at our poorer brothers and sisters and recognize that they may very well have a closer relationship with God. They literally rely on God day by day for their food, while we have a freezer full of food. So we need to hold them in high esteem and be willing to alleviate their suffering. We can't just simply say the poor are blessed, we don't have to do anything. We saw from the book of Micah a few, few weeks ago that we cannot say we love God if we have no concern for the physical needs of our brothers and sisters. But secondly, these verses apply to our actions, in particular our act of trust. In verse 9, Hannah reminds us that it is not by strength that one prevails. How does one prevail then? Well, like Hannah, through simple, humble trust in God. This past week I was reading uh, 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, which tell the marvelous story of King Hezekiah. And uh, for homework, you can go away and read that. I'm going to spoil the storyline of the Bible here for a moment, but the reality is that Israel's kings were not any much better than her judges had been. They started off really well, but they ended up by being wicked and idolatrous. 
Uh, and just to detour for a moment, the failure of the judges, the failure of the priests, the failure of the kings, the failure of the prophets, all point to one who would be our perfect prophet and priest and king and judge. Anyway, uh, back to King Hezekiah. The book of Kings tells us that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. Second Kings 18 records uh, how the king of the main superpower of that day, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, who'd already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, marches up to the very walls of Jerusalem. There's this vast army that encircles the city, and yet the army is defeated without Hezekiah's army having to shoot an arrow because Hezekiah simply trusted in God with his whole heart and leaned on God. And I don't know what army you're facing today, what impossible situation, but I want you to know that God can be trusted, and that it's not by your strength that you'll prevail. I'm not suggesting that you sit back and do nothing. You may need to hand in the CV, make the appointment with the GP, get the advice of a trusted friend, see a Christian psychologist, but underneath, or rather above all of those things, there needs to be a deep trust in God. I'm not suggesting that everything will immediately work out fine. It may very well not, as one commentator reminds us. There is no guarantee that the humble will always be exalted. Martyrs down through the centuries prove that. But God's ultimate work is with those who submit themselves to him and recognize his reign. God's ultimate work is with those who submit themselves to him and recognize his reign. I can't remember the exact movie now, but I remember that there's a, a sportsman who's all ready uh, to go out and win. And his coach says to him, are you ready? And this man says, I'm, I'm not really sure that I am. And his coach says to him, good. That's the very best sign that actually you are going to win. If you have that sense of inadequacy, it's the sense that in fact you are ready. We're feeling inadequate this morning. We have a God who brings down the proud and raises up the humble. Let's pray together.